over to the gospel according to John chapter 13 as we continue our Advent series. In our series, we have been considering Peter's exhortation to love one another for, as he says, love covers a multitude of sins. The first week we considered uh, Herod's uh, slaughter of the innocents. Last week we considered the loving vulnerability of Christ's love. Today, as the title indicates, we're going to reflect on the strange love that loves even Judas. Let's go to him in prayer. So, Father, we come now uh, to this uh, time and this hour that you have set aside. And we pray, Father, uh, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the wonders, the mysteries, and the scandals of your great love for us through your Son, Jesus. To that end, grant us your spirit to hear truth well, to respond to it well, to speak it well, and protect us, Father, from error. We pray it as your children in Jesus. Amen. Read with me John chapter 13, the first 11 verses. You'll recognize the passage. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world... He loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist, and then he poured water into the basin into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part of me. You, excuse me, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but my, also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Some of you may recognize that uh, in personal conversation as well as in sermons, I keep referring to this passage. Some of you may have noticed that this passage is getting an increasing grip on my own heart and mind. 
Because in this passage, we are, we are brought face to face with the glory that John says at the beginning of his gospel. He actually got to see the glory of the Father. The glory of the Logos now in the flesh. And here we get to see it in action. But we get to see it in a way that if we actually understood what we were seeing would blind us, would cause us to stagger back because of its power and because of its wonder. But because it comes to us in ways that we don't expect, we don't stagger back. We sentimentalize it and we think that is a very kind thing for Jesus to be doing. But Jesus here is revealing nothing less than the glory of God by which all things were created and by which all things are sustained and indeed by which all things are redeemed. Peter, speaking of faithfully living well the holy lives to which we have been called by the birth and resurrection of Jesus in the midst of this world at war, Peter exhorts us to love one another. The beating heart of holy living, Peter is arguing, is this love of Christ, expressing itself among the people of Christ. The love of Christ among the people of Christ is the beating heart of Christian holiness because, Peter tells us, such love covers a multitude of sins. In our series, we've seen that Matthew would say it a little bit more forcefully. Matthew would say that love covers the multitude of sins, the multiplying multitude of sins, as demonstrated in Herod's horrendous slaughter of the Bethlehem innocents. We considered that brief episode in our first Advent sermon, which was immediately preceded by baptism which caused us to ask, why do we celebrate Advent? Why do we bring children into the world? Why do we baptize them in such a violent, terrorizing place? How can one hope to live a holy and loving life in such a profane and sin-sick world? It seems really rather naive. But of course, this is no mere academic or theoretical or even speculative theological question. For we did note and we should note that the spirit of Herod, the horror of Herod, is not his murder of the innocents in Bethlehem. but it is in his passionate commitment to his own rule over his own realm. And when we name it that way, we recognize that the spirit of Herod is alive and well in each one of us today. 
natural born captives ourselves to the spirit of Herod, we find ourselves praying quite naturally, nonetheless, not your will, but my will be done. We pray, my kingdom come, my will be done in heaven as it is on earth. For mine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. The spirit of Herod does not, did not die with Herod, but is alive and well and is repeated 10,000 times a day in our every conversation, in our every relationship, in our every responsibility. Great, after all, is my faithfulness, Lord, unto me, unto me. As such people in such a world, then, how can we hope to live faithfully, never mind love faithfully? But that is precisely the question that Peter has been addressing. What does the living hope of Christ's love actually look like when it takes on flesh and dwells among us? The love of Christ expressing itself in the loving holiness of his people takes on and puts right the multiplying multitude of sins that seem to be flooding our lives and our world. Last week we began to consider the kind of love that can adequately cover such a multiplying multitude of sin. We considered the vulnerability of Christ's love that delights to put itself at risk, that delights to actually enter into the risk of our lives, that actually delights to take upon itself the risks that we face every day. And today, we're going to look at that love again. The love that covers a multitude of sins is a love that loves even Judas. John chapter 13, we need and we notice at the very beginning that this love, well, one is a sacrificial love, and we'll look at that through the time. It's the feast, it's the Paschal feast, the feast of the Passover when the lamb itself was sacrificed. But we notice that the love that is able to do this is a love that is rooted in the knowledge of God and his plan. It is not rooted in the knowledge of self and our abilities. It is not rooted in the knowledge of our circumstances. It is not rooted in the knowledge of the people that we are called to love. It is rooted in the knowledge of God and his plan. Notice, Jesus knew that his hour had come, an hour that had been set, an hour for which he had been born. An hour that he knew about from before he was born. As Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2. And in verse 3, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, that he had come from God and was going back to God. Jesus knew the plan, but more importantly... He knew the planner. 
He knew the goodness and the love and the faithfulness and the mercy and the justice and the holiness of the one who had hatched this plan of redemption. We do not know what tomorrow will bring. We don't know what the next moments will bring. But we do know the one who has already charted the course. We fear what we do not know, but we can walk in the faith by, the one, by who we know as having done that. This knowledge of God and his plan, therefore, anchors Jesus in this life. It holds him. It holds him in place. It holds him upright. It holds him on course. And it propels this life. Notice the language here. Verse 2. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, we'll come back to that, Simon's son to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from the God and was going back to God, rose from supper. The main sentence is there, there, Jesus rose from supper. But the, the word there, rose, creates an ambiguity. It can be translated one of two ways. It can be translated, Jesus rose himself or raised up himself. It can also be translated that uh, Jesus was raised from the table. And for reasons I won't get into here, I believe that the better translation is, during supper when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back from God, in the, in the confidence of that was raised up. He was compelled. He was compelled by the knowledge of his loving Father and the plan that such a loving Father puts into place. He was compelled this is what we like to talk about in our circles as irresistible. The knowledge of God's love, the knowledge of God's reign necessarily lays hold of us and compels us to loving action. Some of you were already anticipating the latter part of the sermon. Because if it's true that the knowledge of God's love necessarily compels the kind of loving action that we're going to talk about here in a moment, then what are we to make of the fact that I'm not necessarily so compelled? Purposefully speaking in the first person there. The kind of love that the knowledge of the Father necessarily compels, just looking at our passage, is purposeful for those of you who are making notes and for those of you who are like alliteration. It is purposeful, it is persistent, and it is participatory. And all of them go together. Notice this. Verse 2 
Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. There's a sense in which that functions as a sort of mini thesis statement for this paragraph. He loved them to the end. What does he mean he loved them? What does he mean that he loved them? What does it mean that he loved them to the end? And that is what the next verses begin to show us. That language of to the end means that there is a goal in mind. There is a purpose in mind. There is an end game in mind. He's not, just, he's not just flying by the seat of his pants. Oh, hey, I wonder how this will play out. He knows exactly where he's going. He knows exactly how he's going to get there. He is going to a particular end. Well, what is that end? Well, we already have gotten a hint of it. He wants the disciples to know the love of the triune God like he knows the love of the triune God. He wants them to taste it. He wants them to see it. He wants them to participate in it. He wants them to know what is it like. What is it like to be a member of the triune God and enjoy that perfect love in that community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? What does that look like and feel like? And how can people like you and me actually even enter into such a thing? That's what he wants them to know. He doesn't want them just to know it. He wants them to be consumed by it. He wants them to be captivated by it. He wants them to be compelled by it. Even as he is. Because there is no greater joy. Hebrews tells us, Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that it is for this joy that was set before him that he endured every aspect of his humiliation. Coming in the form of a baby, absolutely vulnerable. Growing up as a young man, bearing the shame of the gossip associated with his birth. taking upon himself our shame and doing for us what we could never hope to do for ourselves so that, to the end of that, we may be drawn into the loving fellowship of the triune God. You see, the love of Christ for us is always, hear me, the love of Christ for us is always aimed to this end. Well, Dan, you don't understand the circumstances I'm in. Because if he really is the reigning king, this doesn't feel so loving. The love of Christ is always aimed at drawing us out of our captivity to our love of ourselves and into the love of the triune God. You see, Christ loves us too much to let us play in the street where we are prone to mindlessly and blindly run in idolatrous and passionate pursuit of our bouncy ball. No names. Why? Because of his great love for us. Because of his great love for us, he pursues us, he calls us, he grabs us, he yanks us from danger. Not because he is mean, but because he is loving. 
from the danger of mindlessly and blindly pursuing the desires of our hearts that he knows will destroy us, but we don't know that. It hurts, we say. It's frustrating, we say. It's so painful, we say. And it's so embarrassing, we say. And so it's confusing because we think, wait a minute, this is not how love is supposed to feel. I have a dear friend who, when this topic comes up, he likes to call it, forgive me, well, really mean loving. There's another vernacular word he likes to use with it, and I can't say that from the pulpit. Nonetheless, this is what love does. Because the purpose of Christ's love is not to affirm our desires. The purpose of, of the love of the gospel is not to affirm the desires of our heart. The purpose of the gospel love, the purpose of Christ's love is to rescue us from the desires of our heart so that we might revel and flourish together in the desires and the designs of the triune God's loving heart. Because that's where real joy is. That's where real holiness is. That's where real wholeness is. So also is the aim of our participation in Christ's love for one another. We see each other to see each other grow together into the fullness and the beauty of the love of Christ himself. As Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, as Moses tells us in Leviticus 19, it's not a place you would generally go for the love of Christ, but that's, where, that's what's going on there. So also here in John chapter 13. So that we may be one in love, even as the Father and the Son together with the Spirit are one in love. To be such in the world so that the world itself can see that's the power and that's the glory of the triune God's love. That's the end to which he is going. But there's also another little nuance in that language of to the end. And that's what leads us to realize that this love is persistent. The language there of to the end means through to the end. To endure all things to the end. To endure all resistance, to endure all confusion, all the way through to the end. This is what the Old Testament calls the steadfast love of the Lord. That endures my foolishness. That endures my frailty. That endures my fickleness. That endures my day-to-day, moment-by-moment tendency towards faithlessness. Through to the end. So persistent is his love. We see an example of it. Jesus gotten up from the table. He's wrapped the towel, the servant's towel around his waist. And now he is washing the disciples' feet. And he comes to Peter and Peter says, No, you shall never wash my feet. John Calvin says, Well, that's a noble sentiment, Peter, but it misses the point. No, you shall never wash my feet. And yet Jesus persists because the steadfast love of the Lord endures our foolishness, 
endures our lack of understanding, endures our fickleness, is persistent. Jesus convinces Peter, one, by saying, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me, which is a stunning thing. We're going to come back to that in a moment. And Peter says, well, then wash everything. And Jesus says, Jesus says, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except his feet. Now, you remember, there's this, there's this metaphor going on that is rooted in the culture. You take a bath, etc., etc., but you're walking through the streets with sandaled feet, and it's dusty. And so, even if you've taken a bath that day, you walk over to your neighbor's house and your feet get dirty. The metaphor here is, if you know who I am and you are in me, you're already clean. On the whole, but the fact of the matter is that in our day-to-day walk as sinful people among sinful people in a sinful world, we accrue dirt and grime. We need daily to come to Christ that our feet might be washed. Daily confess. Daily turn to him. Daily recognize. This is what it means to be a sinful people Walking in a sinful world among sinful people. Sin accrues to us. We kick up dirt. Others kick up dirt. Our feet get dirty. And so as we enter into the fellowship of the Father, into his house, we need to have our feet cleaned. But notice this. It's not merely the resistance that demonstrates the persistence of this love. Go back to the text. Verse 2, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son. Skip down to the bottom of the last verse. He knew who was to betray him. And he got up from the table and washed his feet. Brothers and sisters, that's a stunning thing. Allow that to sit for a moment in your mind. And if you have the courage, allow it to sit for a moment in your heart. The love of Christ rooted in the love of the triune God compels Jesus to wash the feet of the one he knew would betray him. Ah, that's Judas, we say. But there's one other character in this story we've already met His name is Peter. And Jesus knows that Peter is going to deny him and abandon him. At that crucial moment when Jesus needed a friend, denied him. Three times he denied him. And I'm sorry, Peter, we'll talk about this when we all get to heaven, but it's recorded for all the world to see. Peter denied him three times. 
abandoned him. And it's not just Peter. Peter's the one that gets named. But the fact of the matter is that all of them, all of them that were in that room that night abandoned him. All of them. Gone. Knowing that Judas would betray him. Knowing that they would disappoint and abandon him. He got up from the table and washed their feet. The steadfast love of the Lord endures because that is the glory of the triune God. The glory of the triune God's love is that it is purposeful through Jesus Christ. It is persistent through our own frailty and our own fickleness. And this is where the rubber starts meeting the road. It's participatory. Peter says, not me. Now this is where I start going from preaching to meddling. Because I don't know how many times I've heard, oh, I just could never ask for help. I just don't want to burden people. It sounds noble, as John Calvin said about Peter, but it misses the point. Because the love of the triune God is not about us standing on our own two feet. It's about rejoicing and honoring and communing together in that love. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is why Jesus says, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Because in the giving of the washing and in the receiving of the washing is that communion of the triune God's love. It's not just in serving one another, but it's in being served. It's in graciously receiving that. It is so much easier, brothers and sisters, for those of us who are so saturated in our own pride, to serve others, it is excruciating to be served. Now I'm going to put a bug in your ear because many of you know that on our Monday Thursday services for the last several years, I have um, prepared us to come to the table by washing the feet of the elders before the congregation. But brothers and sisters, here's the fact. The love of the triune God is participatory. It's the humbling to serve, but it's also the humbling to be served. I can't stand people touching my feet. I can't stand it. That's why I'm the pastor, and that's why I wash the elders' feet. Some of you say, oh my word, my feet are ugly. And I've seen some of your feet, and that's true. 
But do you see the point? If we refuse to participate here, we are actually refusing participation in the love of the triune God. You see. Giving such love, receiving such love requires much faith. I.e. the living knowledge of God and of his plan. Knowing the living knowledge of God and his plan to give in such love and as it does to receive such love. It takes significant courage and not courage that we can conjure up, but courage that is rooted in something that is outside ourselves, something that is beyond ourselves, something that is secured outside of ourselves. The glory of God's love and his, the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. In 1914, Christmas Eve of 1914, some of you may be aware of it. There's something known as the Christmas truce. You can look it up on on YouTube. Please don't look it up now. Just track with me. Uh, Joyeux Noel, I believe, is the title of uh, a full-length film that is worth watching. It takes place in World War I. Some of you are familiar with the World War I. World War I was one of the deadliest wars uh, in the 20th century. And it was ugly. It was just huge numbers of casualties on both sides. It takes place mostly in Europe. And in 1914, as the scene opens in this one, uh, this one little five-minute snippet short film, You have enemies who are dug into their respective trenches. There is snow all around. It is snowing. It is cold. They are frigid. And there they are. Two armies drawn up in battle lines against one another, shivering, knowing they may not make it through the end of the night. They may not make it through the end of the week. And as they're shivering there, Come wafting across the air, across the battle lines, comes this beautiful tune. You recognize it, of course. Do you recognize its original name? Stille Nacht. Why? Because it's a German carol. A German carol. And in the film, it's being sung by someone on the German side, remembering and celebrating the love of the triune God in the birth of Jesus Christ. Christmas Eve, 1914. Our common Lord. The reign of a love that transcends battle lines and trench lines. And they hear that. So what happens? 
So the Scots and the French on their side start joining in. This is confusing to the Germans. So they fall silent. After they get over their shock, they join in, and you have two armies singing Silent Night in German, French, and English across enemy lines. In such a situation, what can happen? In fact, what does happen is it, it is nigh into a possible. I've watched this multiple times, and I still find myself struggling to comprehend it because cynicism has taken such a deep root of my own soul. I find myself thinking as the, as the story unfolds, and as I'll tell it in just a moment, now's the time to strike. Because what happens? Well, the next morning, one of the Englishmen captivated by the beauty of the song and the love of Jesus Christ, he actually risks walking up the ladder out of his trench. Hands raised. I come in peace. I mean no harm. Do you understand the courage that it took that man to walk out of the trench, arms raised, because of the beauty of a song? course, the Germans are alerted, their guns are at the ready, and one of the German soldiers, we learn later his name is Otto, says, stop! And then he comes up out of the trench, arms raised, and they walk across the field. And as the camera pans out, you realize that the rest of the armies have started to follow their example. Christmas Day is spent in fellowship, exchanging of names, exchanging of gifts, and a soccer game with the sounds of war on the horizon. They eat together, they drink together, they play together, they share stories together, they exchange gifts. It's a welcome celebration of Christ's birth, of Christ's love, in the very middle of a war, a world at war. Here's my question. Why would they do this? How could they possibly do this? Now, this is World War I. It's a historic event. We find ourselves hard-pressed to reach across the kitchen table, some of us. We find ourselves hard-pressed to walk across the room at church, some of us. I don't know them. They don't know me. That is so hard for us in the same room, worshiping the same Christ. How is it possible that these people rise up out of their trenches to walk across the battle lines to engage brothers and sisters on opposite sides of a war. Well, brothers and sisters, because the love of Christ rooted in the knowledge of the triune God's love and his plans 
transcends battle lines. Because it's irresistible. And it compels us across battle lines. The love of Christ compelled him to cross the battle lines that you and I had drawn. In order to redeem us and to make us his own. It's a prophetic moment, this Christmas truce of 1914, because it's a revelatory moment. In the midst of our sin, in the midst of the mess that we have made of things because of our sins, our God is at work by the love of Christ to make all things new. That's what the Christmas truce of 1914 is all about. Quite simply, to the extent that we resist crossing the battle lines to love those we know or suspect will disappoint us, abandon us, or betray us, we are resisting the knowledge of God's love for us. We are resisting participation in the love of Christ. Why don't we do that? What was the sin of Judas? The sin of Judas was not in betraying Jesus. He betrayed Jesus because he didn't trust Jesus. He didn't believe Jesus. We know this because Peter had done the same thing. He had denied him and abandoned him. And on that day when Jesus rose from the dead, Mary came back from the tomb and she knocked on the door and she said to all the disciples who were gathered there, He's raised from the dead! And she could barely get the sentence out of her mouth when Peter shoved her aside and he went running to the tomb because he knew if he was raised from the dead, then I know the kind of Jesus he is. And he will welcome me, and he will embrace me, and he will restore me, and he will make me whole. The difference between Peter and Judas was not that one betrayed him and one didn't. The difference is that one believed him and one didn't. Are we so captivated by the love of the triune God and the love of Jesus Christ that we will actually walk across the room to love one another, to love strangers, to love even those that we suspect might disappoint us, abandon us, and betray us. The love of Christ compels it, and it's such love that covers a multitude of sins. Let's pray.